Welcome to the Public Morality. America has long touted its democratic virtue. Democracy was a key weapon in the Cold War. But in the last decade, we've seen a decline in democratic rule and norm erosion in the United States. Most notable was the January 6th domestic terrorism that put an end to America's long-held tradition of peaceful transfer of power. But where is America today? Is it on the democratic upswing or still on the trajectory of decline? Joining me to discuss the plight of American democracy is Professor Larry Diamond. Professor Diamond teaches at Stanford University and is a fellow at the Hoover Institute located in Palo Alto, California. Professor Diamond is one of democracy's leading contemporary scholars. Professor Larry Diamond, welcome to The Public Morality. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I want to begin the discussion by having you qualify the term democracy. When, when, when we speak of democracy for this conversation, how are you defining it, sir? Well, at a minimum, democracy is a system of government in which people can choose and replace their leaders uh, in free and fair elections. But beyond that, uh, I think all Americans uh, want to live, and I think most people want to live, in a liberal democracy where there's freedom of the press, freedom of association, strong protection for individual liberties, a strong rule of law, good government. So that's the full package uh, of what I mean when I talk about democracy. Now, if, as many believe, um, that democracy is in a moral imperative, uh, why, given your last answer what democracy is, why do you think there's been a, 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 a contraction globally of, of democratic rule? Well, there has been uh, a contraction over the last 10 to 15 years Increasingly, all of the different uh, organizations that rate these things are, are documenting this in um, pretty stunning fashion. I think democracy spread to a lot of parts of the world where the conditions for sustaining it are not quite as favorable in terms of prior experience, high levels of education and income, uh, a stable regional uh, environment, things like that. But uh, I think there also have been uh, historical developments that have contributed to the global democratic recession, as I've called it. Um, one of these is that I think uh, democracy is not functioning as well in the West and in the advanced industrial democracies as it once did. We're no longer quite the model that we were. Uh, we Our politics are very polarized and um, occasionally seem dysfunctional. On the other hand, China has risen as a global power, a superpower, and is trying to throw its weight around uh, the world and use uh, coercion, corruption, and intimidation uh, and other forms of influence uh, pressure to try to undermine democracy and propagandize for authoritarian rule and make the world safe for the semi-totalitarian system there in the business of trying to deepen uh, in China and carry forward uh, globally. Russia is back as a resurgent power. So the world situation has changed. We don't have the uh, quite the preeminence of power that we did uh, at the turn of the century, and I think that is uh, that's a very big big factor. Then there's been uh, there's been globalization. You know, more and more people are crossing borders. More and more goods and services are crossing borders. People are anxious about the loss of uh, control uh, and uh, the change in status that this brings for individuals as well as countries. A lot of people are feel feeling anxious uh, about their jobs as manufacturing has been moving out of the United States and to some extent out of Europe. So there's quite a, a mix of, of economic, 
structural historical factors that have been uh, disrupting the way things were and rendering people vulnerable to populist appeals. Well, given, just given that, that, that very extensive answer, it would also seem to me that I, I remember uh, a time when we would tout the virtues of, of, of our democratic system uh, that was in the throes of the Cold War. Uh, it doesn't seem like America can do that in the same way, as, at least as effectively. Would that be accurate, sir? I think that it's accurate for today, but I don't accept it as a, you know, as a long-term prognosis for American democracy. I think that our democracy is tarnished, polarized, uh, divided, uh, disappointing probably to most Americans, but uh, it can do better and we can do better. And I think we have to take it as a challenge to revive and improve and strengthen and defend our democratic values and institutions so that the United States can be, as Ronald Reagan said, a shining city on a hill, an inspiration to, um, to other people around the world. Uh, how do you respond to those who might say to you, Okay, Professor Diamond, uh, uh, are you guilty of hyperbole? Our, 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 freedom, uh, our freedom of movement, right to assemble, freedom of speech uh, wasn't curtailed over the last four years. So how can you say we're in decline? How would you respond to something like that? Well, I think our civil liberties are in really uh, in reasonably good shape, Byron. Um, people still have extensive freedom uh, to move about, to express themselves, and so on. I think our rights of privacy are being eroded uh, in the era of digital uh, surveillance, not only by government, but by corporations. And that's something uh, we need to worry about. But I think our democracy has been degraded in other ways uh, in, in recent years. The most obvious way is that we're a deeply polarized country. And increasingly, uh, Republicans and Democrats don't trust one another, have a low opinion of one another, don't talk to one another. In social matters, a lot of public opinion survey research suggests that uh, a lot of parents would rather have their kids marry someone of a different race, a different religion, a different ethnicity, a different planet, <laughs> than have them marry someone from a different political party. I mean, it's very hard to have these conversations. And I certainly do think that... Um, during the previous administration under President Trump, uh, checks and balances eroded, uh, ethical standards eroded, uh, and now we have um, this widespread uh, campaign after the inspiration of an election with the highest voter turnout in a century because you know, pe people faced fewer, you know, uh, obstacles to voting so more people voted it was uh, it, it was logical uh and all the experts say that it was the most secure and efficient election we've had uh in many decades yet uh we have all these efforts now to try and suppress the vote uh targeted in particular uh at african americans and other racial minorities so you know, these are things that are very concerning uh, to people who value uh, democracy and uh, liberal values, uh, free and fair elections, uh, the founding principles of our country. So uh, we have a democracy. It's vigorous in many ways. Uh, we certainly have <clears throat> our freedom. But uh, our democracy is diminished in important respects and needs refreshing reform and defending. Well, when I think about, when I take your last answer, and you you mentioned the the uh, voter turnout of the twenty twenty election, which was with the highest since nineteen hundred, I believe, or somewhere around there. Uh, 
yeah. Yet at the and at the same time, I'm sort of immediately following when when most political parties engage in on the losing side. You know the the where do we go wrong analysis? You see a number of state legislatures uh, engaged in what many feel are voter suppression tactics. And you also mentioned earlier the, the, some of the indexes, like I, I'm assuming you were you were referring to Freedom House and the Economist Democracy Index. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm just thinking. Yeah. I'm just thinking based on your last answer that I mean that can't bode well to move us up in in those indexes, given that type of behavior on the heels of an historic election. Well, I think it will depend on what happens. Uh, bills have in, been introduced in 43 states in the United States to restrict voting rights. Uh, And these are bills in many cases, if not most, that are going to have the clear effect, analysts say, of making it more difficult for um, people of racial minorities in particular to vote. And it's so obvious that this is going to be the case. It's impossible to escape the conclusion that this is the motive behind the bills. But these bills haven't passed yet. And so, yes, if they do pass or if other restrictions on democracy or the right to vote are implemented, of course, uh, independent evaluation agencies will judge that in that respect, the quality of democracy has declined further in the United States. But it's on us to ensure that we move forward in terms of the right to vote and free and fair elections and not move backwards. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to digress this conversation, but I, I, do, I did read yesterday that um, in, in one of Georgia's pieces of legislation about voting, um, they outlawed bringing someone food or water who was standing in line. I don't know if that's gonna. I don't know. I don't know if that's gonna hold up. I sure hope it doesn't hold up. But I mean, that's, I, 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 I can't imagine that that's not unconstitutional. <laughs> I mean, it's just so outrageous. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be funny if we were not talking about you know uh, democratic rule. Uh, So some of the things you mentioned... Well, and let me say, uh, you know, it's well known uh, that African churches have um, mobilized people to uh, come out to vote after um, church services on Sunday where there's early voting. I mean, you know, you target that. You know what you're doing. You're targeting... uh, the voter mobilization of African Americans. I, I just don't know what could be, uh, you know, more explicitly uh, racially motivated than that. Uh, so I hope that people are going to take a step back and say, this is not who we want to be as Americans. Well, I, I thought that uh, what was uh, the attorney Michael Carvin, who was before the Supreme Court um, this week on the Arizona on some Arizona voting issues, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked, "Why does the Republican Party have a vested interest in this?" And he said, "Because," and he said very candidly, "Democrats uh, will have a competitive advantage." I, I thought that was brazenly yeah. honest, but I was surprised. But I thought that was incredibly honest that he would make such you know a declaration. Right. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> I wonder if he even realizes uh, the damage he did to his cause by being so honest. But um, the burden, again, is on us, all of us as American citizens, to hold ourselves to fair and objective standards of democracy and to, when it comes to democracy, the mechanics of our democracy— to put aside partisanship uh, and value participation, inclusion, competition, the basic principles of democracy. Is it an oversimplification to offer that the genesis of our democratic decline uh, began with the advent of Donald Trump as a viable political candidate? Is that, does that oversimplify the pro- uh, our problem? 
yes, it not only oversimplifies it, it's just wrong. Uh, I'd say that the decline of American democracy began at least two decades before with the growing polarization of our politics and the rise of, of shock radio, uh, Rush Limbaugh and flamethrowers who, you know, weren't interested in facts. They were just interested in, in emotion and anger and, uh, high ratings. And we've been, uh, facing, uh, these voter suppression efforts for a while now, I don't think they started under Donald Trump, uh, which is why we have the Voting Rights Act and why we need to renew the Voting Rights Act. So um, Trump took it to a new level in a number of respects, Byron. Uh, first of all, he intensified the political polarization and animus, the toxicity in our politics, in a variety of ways, including with the uh, extreme personalization and degradation of the language we use to refer to our political opponents, this juvenile demeaning of all of his opponents with these silly nicknames and the trafficking in, in blatant falsehoods uh, and the depiction of his opponents as uh, as not just opponents but enemies, uh, the you know the fake news media and the opposition as treasonous, these sorts of things are very very dangerous. And then when he got into office, uh, he progressively trashed the judiciary and public confidence in the judiciary. He uh, I undermine uh, respect for uh, rules and institutions, uh, firing several uh, inspectors general who were investigating uh, corruption or abuse of power within their different cabinet departments and agencies. Uh, he routinely violated the Emoluments Act by running businesses that you know, he was directing uh, government, uh, uh, you know, contracts to staying in his hotels and using his golf courses and so on, his resorts. So I think he really kind of lowered our, our ethical standards and violated, uh, you know, principles of uh, respect for the judiciary, respect for checks and balances, respect for the rule of law. Uh, but it didn't start with him. Uh, it just got a lot worse under him. You, you said something I uh, just did in your answer, it was your earlier answer. You, you said that it was, it was on us. And I'm wondering, what do you attribute to the fact that uh, Trump could have very easily uh, been in violation of the Emoluments Clause? And But we live in a, that, that sort of polarized world, so if my side does it, there is plenty of circumspection and nuance that I can apply to it, but if your size d does it, it's wrong. And you know, how do we how do we get beyond um, nuancing those things that should not be nuanced? Where that where, where okay, this action, whatever this action is, is just a bridge too far. How do we get beyond where we are now? Well, I think we've got to put our faith uh, back in neutral and nonpartisan institutions and fair and nonpartisan application of those institutions. So take, for example, gerrymandering. It's wrong wherever it happens. The overwhelmingly Democratic uh, legislature in Maryland, uh, Maryland, uh, you know, gerrymandered uh, the seats in a Democratic direction. The same way that the Republican legislatures in North Carolina, if I may say so, in Ohio, oh. gerrymandered uh, electoral districts uh, to the advantage of the Republican Party. So let's have a neutral rule. Take uh, the drawing of election district boundaries everywhere in Republican-leaning states and Democratic-leaning states 
out of the hands of politicians and give them to neutral independent commissions that will draw electoral district boundaries as fair as possible uh, with a view toward creating districts that will represent as faithfully as possible uh, the, uh, the distribution of the vote for the House of Representatives or state legislature or, or whatever. Do they have a, a situation in Ohio where, you know, Republicans win 52, 53% of the vote for Congress and get 75% of the state's uh, seats in Congress with, as you know, a very similar pattern in North Carolina. This just doesn't pass an elementary test of fairness. Fundamentally, uh, uh, America's democratic-republican form of government hinges uh, uh, on an idea first articulated uh, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, about, about liberty and equality. And I'm wondering if the, if the last four years have demonstrated the vulnerability of that idea. Um, let's talk about the future. Does it stand the reason that a single election will not suffice in altering um, the declines that we've, we, we've been discussing thus far? Well, of course, uh, you can't revive and improve the quality of democracy with a single election. Uh, many of our problems are structural, uh, Byron. They have to do with the incentives that are generated for uh, politicians to appeal to the extremes of their parties rather than to the broad majority of the electorate, which is why I favor electoral reform, particularly ranked choice voting, so that you know if someone's going to win the governorship or a congressional seat, they've got to have a majority of the vote uh, in a district and Professor if, Diamond, or wanna, in the state. Professor Diamond, if I could, would you just uh, outline for our listeners uh, the principles of ranked choice voting, please? Yeah, sure. I, I'd be happy to do that. Um, ranked choice voting is a system where instead of voting for a single candidate, uh, you are able to rank your preferences among the different candidates. Let's say uh, there's a vote for governor of North Carolina. In addition to uh, the Republican and the Democratic candidates, there might be a Libertarian candidate. There might be a Green Party candidate. You know, there might be a you know Farmers Party candidate. Who knows? And uh, likely would be an independent candidate. And um, instead of just voting for one, you rank your preferences, one, two, three, four, whatever it might be. And then if someone gets a majority of first preference votes, fine. It's like now, you know, they're elected. But if no one gets a majority of the first preference votes, then there's uh, what happens is called an instant runoff. The candidate with the lowest number of first preference votes is eliminated, and those votes are transferred to uh, the voters' second choices, uh, the people who voted for that candidate. They're redistributed, and then you have an instant runoff. And if somebody gets a majority of the vote done, the election is over. But you, this keeps happening. Uh, with the instant runoffs, and it's like musical chairs. Somebody's eliminated, and the and the game continues uh, until somebody gets a majority of the vote. Often this will happen on the first round, but sometimes it won't. And you want to be sure that whoever is elected has a broad enough base of support uh, to govern legitimately and effectively. And you also want to provide incentives to moderation uh, and more choice for voters. So if you know that you have to win a majority of the vote in order to win, that you may need to get uh, the preferences of some of the uh, voters who would rank you as their second choice, but not not their first, you've got to appeal to a broader electorate. And it's going to kind of rein in perhaps some of your hyper-partisan tendencies. So uh, this system is believed to uh, encourage moderation, 
and uh, to encourage more civil elections. And uh, it's coming to be tried now in a number of cities in the U.S. New York will use it uh, for its mayoral election in the fall. Maine has been using it uh, in its uh, 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 its congressional and senate elections. I think Oakland the state of Alaska just adopted it. Didn't Oakland use it for its has been using for several years for its mayoral race as well? Yes, a number of cities have been using it: San Francisco, uh, Portland, Maine, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, a growing number of cities uh, are adopting ranked choice voting to their municipal elections. So I was just going to say that uh, even if we have a very successful Biden presidency, uh, we still need to change the incentive structure. So that people are more inclined to cooperate and get along and so that we can uh, reduce polarization, uh, reduce the abuse of power, make the drawing of electoral district boundaries a nonpartisan exercise and have a democracy where Republicans and Democrats can cooperate again rather than just uh, trash one another from morning to night. But I will say that, um, you know, if we can climb out of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, get everybody vaccinated or the overwhelming uh, majority of the American people, get the economy back on its feet and return to normal within, say, this, uh, this calendar year, I think it's going to be a jolt in the arm, not only to the American economy, but to American democracy that we realize, you know, we're not so divided and our government is not so bereft of capacity and public trust that we can't do hard things anymore. Uh, So I, I am more hopeful than I've been in a while. Um, talk, talk, if you will, because because um, even though America tends has been middle of the pack in terms of the democracy indexes, we are the nation that the world looks at. I mean, I I, I am, uh, have a app for Le Mans, and Le Mans is always telling me stuff that happens in America. So it's, it's kind of amazing. But but what is the global impact? Uh, potential global impact, I should say, about these recent um, voter suppression tactics by a number of state legislatures. Does it have a a global impact because it is the United States of America that's engaging in this practice? Yes, of course. It diminishes uh, dramatically our standing in the world. It diminishes our moral authority in the world. And it undermines our ability to go to the world and say, you don't want to fall into the arms of a neo-totalitarian communist state in China. Don't hand over your economy to the People's Republic of China. Don't hand over your telecom infrastructure uh, to this uh, Orwellian surveillance state. Uh, join with NATO alliance uh, and the loose alliance of democracies uh, in the Asia-Pacific region to maintain uh, a global system of uh, free and open access and respect for individual rights. It undermines our ability to rally the world around these universal values when we're doing these things to degrade democracy in the United States. Uh, and and uh, I believe at the time of this broadcast, uh, the China just rolled back some of the uh, democracy privileges that Hong Kong has enjoyed for decades. So, uh, to your point, uh, has... What, Hon- what China has done in Hong Kong is tragic, outrageous, and a blatant violation of the commitments it undertook uh, with the uh, uh, 
declaration they had signed with Britain, uh, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, to preserve Hong Kong's way of life and its autonomous system, rule of law, system of governance for at least 50 years. It's really a tragedy. And to your last, to your last answer, and, and it really does diminish our ability to, to, to have a contrarian moral voice on that issue. Right. Yes. Uh, it, it undermines our ability to, to push back, and it, it gives Russia and China the ability to say around the world, you know, well, who are you to criticize us when you're doing, doing these things? And, uh, you know, uh, much of the rest of the world uh, once drew inspiration from the United States, uh, partly as a result of the successful mobilization for voting rights and for equality. So to see this being rolled back now, it's not only painful in and of itself, but it's heartbreaking in terms of the damage it's doing to our standing in the world. And when you mentioned the Soviet, what the Soviet Union might say, I mean, isn't that a similar argument that Nikita Khrushchev was posing to John Kennedy right after the uh, Birmingham uh, riots uh, with the police dogs and the fire hoses? So it's like we were what, regressed, what, 55, uh, 56 years or so? Right. No, of course. <laughs> It's not like the Soviet Union, uh, you know, had any uh, respect for individual liberty. Oh, abs or, oh absolutely frankly, not. It, color oh, absolutely either. not. <laughs> but yes, it it gives them a pretext to challenge and, and undermine us. And of course, Russia now in the current era is uh, intervening in our social media to try and exploit racial divisions and gives them more grounds to do that as well. Uh, for anyone who may be listening, I am not suggesting that uh, Nikita Khrushchev in any way was morphing into Mohandas K. Gandhi. So uh, <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Um, talking with uh, Stanford professor uh, uh, Larry Diamond. And professor Diamond, uh, I'm wondering, because one of the things that, that, that I write about often in my column that, that's, that's important to me and sort of where we get the name of this broadcast of public morality has – has civic, I mean, has partisanship just garnered supremacy over civic virtue, whereby a vi you know, whereby a violation of the civic virtue, however defined, at one time was a bridge too far. Now it depends on party affiliation whether it's a bridge too far. When did partisanship gain supremacy in your view? Well, I think it's been a trend of the last three decades. In fact, you can see it. Uh, statistically, both in congressional voting patterns and in public attitudes, that people have been moving more and more apart from one another. And we just had this COVID relief bill, as you know, that passed without a single Republican vote in either chamber. That's an indication of how polarized we are. Uh, and you can you can trace the process over over several decades, but I think in the last decade or so, it's become particularly uh, Byron under the influence of social media much more toxic, or to use a social uh, uh, a social media term, viral. It just moves with the speed, with an intensity, with the self righteousness. Uh, with a comprehensive, um, you know, all-encompassing anger and outrage that we haven't seen previously. And, you know, we're all Americans. Uh, we all want our country to succeed. We all want our kids to be healthy and safe. So we, we have to find ways to live with our differences and to to talk to one another and to recover some minimum floor of mutual respect, uh, empathy, and restraint. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things in terms of American democracy. The one thing, Professor Diamond, we have not talked about is the influence uh, of money in elections and how that impacts 
the overall health of our democracy. Speak to that, if you would. Well, it's pretty shocking the amount of money it takes to be uh, elected to particularly uh, Congress or the U.S. Senate or so on. And we just had in Georgia, as you know, the most expensive uh, Senate elections in American history, I think over $100 million. But, you know, I would be very wary of uh, uh, reforms. We need reforms, but in particular, um, I think we need transparency in campaign finance and the elimination of dark money. So that special interests can't fund these campaigns uh, without our knowing what's going on. You've got a lot of dark money now that flows from political action committees to candidates without uh, clarity on where the money is coming from. And so all of this should be disclosed in time for voters to evaluate where this money is coming from and whether it encumbers the uh, candidate if he or she should be elected to office uh, with a certain degree of compromise in terms of who they're really representing. Uh, I'd love to see more public funding for campaigns. I'd love to see restraints on what candidates could spend uh, and campaigns, but, you know, we can't get consensus across the political parties on this. And of course, because of, um, uh, Supreme court decisions like citizens United and Buckley, the, uh, Vallejo, uh, you know, it you can't regulate, uh, uh, how much money uh, candidates can spend, uh, particularly of their own money, or how much money uh, political action committees can spend. Uh, it's uh, been considered by the Supreme Court uh, an element of uh, freedom of speech. I think that's a wrong interpretation, but now that is the interpretation. So, you know, we're somewhat limited in what we can do. <laughs> You know, you just make you mentioned Citizens United. I'm I'm just uh, my bias, but I'm just having a difficult time imagining um, John Jay, who at the time was the, the, our first Supreme Court justice, saying to James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. So I picked all the people who wrote the Federalist Papers, just saying to them, "Corporations are people too." I just I just wonder. I just don't know what that what the Madison and Hamilton uh, uh, response would be to that. They just it just and that's sort of where we are with with Citizens United. I don't think that's what they had in mind, but you know, under our system of government, uh, the su- Supreme Court is the final arbiter of constitutional meaning. Finally. And I, 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 I know I know it's too early uh, to tell whether the 2020 turnout was an aberration. We know that midterm elections uh, tend to be have a lower turnout than than the presidential elections. But between now and uh, 2022, I'm not, I'm not going to push you out on a limb too far. What are what are are some steps that we could take to to improve the health of our democracy in the, in, the, in this short period of time? Well, I think number one, renew the Voting Rights Act and prohibit states from adopting provisions that would make it more difficult for people to vote particularly when the intention clearly is to um, disenfranchise uh, racial minorities. Number two, I think we need to shore up our electoral administration. You know, it takes a lot of money to run elections. And a lot of states have needed to modernize their voting equipment and may need to do it further in advance of 2022 to ensure that voter registration databases can't be hacked by nefarious actors, to ensure that we have um, adequate machinery 
for rapidly counting absentee ballots uh, and so on. Private philanthropies in 2020 put in at least half a billion dollars into funding for state and local electoral administration because the Congress didn't appropriate enough money. So I think that we need to ensure adequate funding for state uh, and local electoral administration. I think it would be better if the chief electoral officers in the state were not themselves elected officials, elected on one party platform or another. Uh, I think that we can still achieve, even in advance of 2022, some electoral reform in some states to move toward this system of ranked choice voting that I described to you. Uh, these are things that we can do in the near term uh, that would make our democracy uh, work better. And finally, of course, uh, there are things we need to avoid doing. And one of them is the extreme form of gerrymandering of electoral districts that results in these um, tortuously drawn uh, district boundaries that have the effect of simply trying to maximize the number of districts that one party can win. Uh, this is not really healthy in a democracy. It's not fair. And um, it's causing cynicism about our politics. It's contributing to political polarization. So I hope that we could tackle that uh, in the uh, congressional and state legislative redistricting that's going to be coming up now in advance of the 2022 election. Do you happen to know the percentage of safe seats that currently exist in the House of Representatives? I don't. Um, it's the the percentage of safe seats in the House uh, is not as high as it, it was maybe six, eight, ten years ago. So I think that, you know, in 2020, there were considered to be, I think, at least 50 seats that were potentially competitive. So I, I hope that the number will increase rather than decrease, Byron, because when you have more competitive districts, generally parties need to nominate candidates who are more toward the center uh, if they're going to win the district uh, because there are more swing voters who could go either way. And that tends to reduce polarization when that happens. Professor Larry Diamond, Stanford University, thank you, sir, for bringing your wise counsel to the public morality. It's been much appreciated to have you on with us. It's been an honor. Thank you, Byron, uh, for the show and for uh, its very appropriate title. Stay tuned as political commentator Joe Tuman joins us to discuss President Biden's first primetime address here on The Public Morality. Welcome back. President Biden recently gave his first primetime address as he spoke to the nation, marking the one-year anniversary of the coronavirus pandemic. As Politico's Ryan Lizza opined, every president is eventually called upon to help us collectively grieve. Joe Biden may be the first president elected to do so. To get a sense of the effectiveness of Biden's remarks, we welcome back political commentator Joe Tuman. Joe Tuman, welcome back to The Public Morality. My pleasure, Myron. It's been a long time. I hope you've been doing well. Yes. Um, all right. On a scale from one to five, one being President Bush's mission accomplished performance and five being uh, FDR's fireside chat when he spoke about the banking crisis and a banking holiday, where, where, where do you place Biden's remarks last, uh, his recent remarks? Well, I think the, the presentation he made yesterday, which was moved up uh, because they managed to get everything tabulated a little bit early. Um, otherwise, he would have been giving that speech today. But the speech he gave uh, you know, yesterday, last night, um, I, I think it was a remarkable presentation in a lot of ways. It was equal parts um, 
a, a, deserve, a well-deserved, uh, you know, run, run around the bases once, uh, the, the home run trot sort of, um, uh, that he, you know, he was not afraid to take credit for. Um, in point of fact, I, I thought he, he correctly took credit because uh, given the politics of Washington these days and all the animosity and, and vitriol and piss and vinegar there is there, um, you have to take credit when it's yours. And, you know, as a sitting president, if things had not gone well and you know, the things that he was able to talk about in the speech last night didn't happen, uh, even if, it, you know, even if that was someone else's fault, he would have been blamed. So he was well within his rights last night to talk positively about these, these things that are coming, but also to affirmatively take credit for it, which he should have. And, and he reminded at one point uh, the audience of, you know, as many people who were watching television at that, at that moment, um, he reminded them that his predecessor, you know, had, had not made any headway on these things. And uh, yesterday, as you may recall, uh, Mr. Trump put out that fake uh, letterhead of his and where he sort of pretends he's still the president and wanted to take credit for the, for the vaccine, singular vaccine. And of course, you know, the correct response to that is that Biden is actually responsible for four vaccines now, and he's gotten two large pharmaceuticals to work with each other to speed this stuff up. And he's way ahead of schedule with getting, I mean, we've moved past testing. He's way ahead of schedule for getting vaccinations to everybody. And, and, uh, so he was correct. I thought last night, um, and, and appropriate and measured, um, when he, when he, he, he uh, reached for and took credit for the things that have happened. Um, and I, I frankly, it would have thought less of him as a politician if he didn't, frankly. Um, uh, I don't know that he's going to get all the other things through, like the, uh, uh, the, the infrastructure program that he wants to do or the controversial HR1 um, a program they want to push through. Um, but he got this one through. And it, it is in scale to me, uh, as someone that studied politics for most of his life, this is something very similar to uh, FDR's approach to the Great Depression. I mean, these were these were hugely significant uh, things that changed the country. Um, in that era for FDR, let's remember, since we're speaking of infrastructure, and that was when we built these, these national highways that completely transformed our economy and connected you know, in different parts of the country to each other um, as well. It was transformative in a lot of ways. And what Biden... Uh, is proposing in the infrastructure bill to come um, is something equally huge and, and likely to you know have more jobs available than we have workers for that that kind of transformative thing. So, so but we have to get there, and, and right now Biden is paying the price for. I'm sorry, I jumped to Eddie. I'll no, just go, ahead, go quickly, ahead. Go but, ahead. No, you're fine. But Biden, you know, uh, is going to uh, obviously uh, get the credit for, that he deserves for doing the important work, which is address and arrest the virus and deal with unemployment. And those two things are connected. Um, whether he'll have as much luck uh, in a very, you know, in a, in a situation where the math is very tight in the Senate, able to control his own 50 voters and uh, able to uh, push through, uh, you know, these other measures that he wants to do, like uh, what we just mentioned, um, that remains to be seen. And 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 uh, that that's going to be a harder sell as they go forward. The Republicans are going to want to be part of this and not shut out. But so far, he's played this really well. I think very very well. First of all, Joe, um, people tend to listen more when you talk than when I talk. So don't ever worry about cutting me off. So that's, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, second of all, that that was actually the a perfect segue to to my next question. Um, this is not a partisan critique, but but based on political strategy. Given where the country presently stands in every aspect, economically, socially, can the Republican Party continue to be against Democratic proposals uh, and really only having room for tax cuts, or, or are they going to have to make some tough choices in your view? Oh, clearly they have to make some tough choices. And, and actually, interestingly enough, um, the problem for them is is not just Biden. In fact, Biden, um, in many ways, is is a, a more minor obstacle for them. Their problem right now is Donald Trump, and the question, you know, about whether uh, uh, 
Trump will continue to work with the Republican Party or Trump will do what he appears to be doing with this fundraising, which is sort of going off on his own. And I think he's recognized that he is the product that's being sold. And a lot of these Republicans, on the other hand, uh, Mitch McConnell and others, are not the positive favorite, you know, uh, politicians of uh, that most Republicans look towards. So I think the Republican Party's bigger problem or challenge right now is to is to bring Trump back inside. Um, and even if that happens, by the way, let's remember as much as you know the Republicans keep crowing about the fact that they got 75 or whatever, 65 million votes, whatever it was in the last election, that, that, that uh, Joe Biden got five or six million more. And you know, I don't know what's, what's in the status quo that's going to, right now, that's going to make Biden look like a lesser candidate if he chooses to run again in the next cycle, or if he chooses to put his name behind people running in the Senate and the House in two years in the midterms, um, if Biden gets behind them. You know, he's still a more popular president, and even Republicans are happy with this bill that he pushed through yesterday. So, you know, if you're the Republican Party, you, there's some soul searching that has to go on uh, right now about who are they and what do they stand for. And if all they stand for at the end of the day is being opposed to whatever Biden wants, that's not that's not a way to win elections. Frankly, it's it's a you you have to come up with with your own proposals. You have to show why yours are better, and uh, you also have to not be a hypocrite in this. And and there's been ample news coverage of, you know, the fact that the, the same Republican Party who is complaining about how expensive Biden's uh, Rescue Act is for the country dealing with the virus and the, the vaccines and, again, addressing unemployment and the like. Um, you know, if they don't have another program that's better, then what are they going to do? I mean, they can't really offer themselves as an alternative. And, and as I said, most of the polling indicates that more than half of the Republican voters in this country wanted Biden's program as well. And who's to, who wants to turn away a check for $1,400? Who wants uh, to say no to a guy who's trying to get you your job back in a, in a situation where people may not get their jobs back? Um, and what's the Republican alternative to this? So they're facing that problem, and then they have to deal with Trump. Um, and anybody who's ever been in business with Trump has eventually learned the lesson that he usually doesn't pay <laughs> his vendors who work for him. He always finds a way to sort of stiff them. So why would the Republican Party be any different? If he, if they got in bed together again and tried to act as one, Trump will eventually do what's right for Trump, not what's right for the Republican Party. And he'll use the Republican Party as a vessel, just like he did in 2016. But as we saw by the end of 2020, Trump was in this for himself. Why would that change in this next cycle? That's the problem the Republican Party has. They either need to sever themselves from Trump and rebuild and maybe be something more centrist that could appeal to Democrats who are disaffected with the Democratic Party. Or they just have to, to accept the fact that the Republican Party will eventually fade into irrelevance in this country. And that's in some ways too bad because there are good people over there, too. And it's good to have different perspectives. It's healthy. Um, but at this point, everything is zero-sum game, a game rather. And uh, where Trump is concerned, it's all about, you know, how much do I win and how much do I win by? And and that's that's an unfortunate scenario we're facing today. Uh, my next question uh, may sound like a distinction without a difference, but when I watch President Biden's remarks, it seemed to strike the difference between oratory and communication, and with with yeah. Bi with Biden emphasizing the latter. Now, given given this is one of your particular areas of expertise, uh, I wondered how did you see it, and and, and, and what is that distinction with, with particularly with presidents? Well, um, the. the the term oratory as a, as a form of public speaking, that there are different kinds of ways that we express ourselves using our voice, um, is actually uh, a product, if you go back in history, of, of a group called, uh, philosophically, a group who called themselves the Sophists. They practiced what was called sophistry, and they lived uh, initially in Greece, ancient Greece, 
um, where uh, the first experiments with free expression were allowed, although they only applied to Greek males uh, who were wealthy and, and connected with the government there. Those people could speak their minds uh, and not fear retribution. And sophists believed that people other than these wealthy elites should also be allowed to learn the techniques of public speaking, and in particular, how to make arguments, like they did um, later, not just in Greece, but in Rome and the Roman Senate, for example, where the senators could actually speak their minds without fear of retribution uh, from the emperor or from the ruler uh, at the time. And so Sophus said, let's teach ordinary people how to do this. And it wasn't just how to give speeches and express themselves. It was also, more importantly, for our, your question, uh, how to teach people to make persuasive arguments, uh, teaching people the, you know, the, the elements of persuasion and differentiating eventually uh, the, the role of logic in this um, and where that appealed as well, uh, the useful application of emotion in, in oratory or in presentations. And uh, ultimately, you know, they they helped to spread this idea. And sophistry uh, eventually turned into what we call rhetoric, which was taught for a very long time in the European colleges and universities and eventually made its way across the Atlantic to the United States as well and became kind of a global thing in a way. And, and so when we talk about, uh, you know, differentiating communication or expression from oratory, for example, um, they are the same in the sense that they're both about public address, and you, using your voice to address an, a larger audience, for example. And that's different from interpersonal communication, where it's just you and another person talking, a conversation, right? This is a speech to an audience. Um, you know, oratory in the modern era is about persuasion, persuading people to your point of view, persuading people to dismiss their existing point of view and come over to you. And uh, what you saw with Biden last night was equal parts, as I said, taking credit um, for meeting and exceeding his goals, which I think is something that was wise for him to do. Um, to, a, to a degree, you saw a less overt effort at persuasion because um, he wasn't really trying to persuade him of anything except to accept the fact that he had been right in making those promises and was going to take credit for it. I think the audience was already persuaded on the the question of whether or not sending these checks out to people and giving extending unemployment benefits, offering those kinds of protection, helping small businesses, helping restaurants to reopen, and the whole laundry list of stuff that in rhetoric we call catalog um, was was out there. But I think he was already speaking to an audience that had already been persuaded on this. When you looked at those polls from before, as I said. Republicans were um, very happy <laughs> to have this program. I don't think the Republican senators were very happy that their names weren't attached to this. Um, and they, I think they're mad at him for not engaging them more. But the fact is, you know, they stiffed him when it came to uh, appointments to the Supreme Court um, uh, some years ago. And uh, not, not just him. I mean, they, the Republicans were in charge. Um, uh, stiffed Barack Obama, pardon me, some years before um, when it came to Supreme Court nomination. So I think Biden looked at this situation and said, you guys haven't always played fair. We don't have to play fair in this situation either. And the fact is, if I don't deal with the virus and pe put people back to work, I'm not going to be president anymore. So I'm going to take advantage of the power I have right now and get this pushed through. And that's what he did. And that's what he'll get credit for. Joe Tuman, friend, uh, more importantly, August's grandfather. Uh, th <laughs> thank you, thank you, sir, for once again joining us on the Public Rally. We we always love to have you on. So thank you, sir. Thank you so much, Byron. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. 
The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Hey.